Well, for those of you who uh, regularly attend here, you probably were a little surprised this morning that the room is set up sideways. Not at all in the usual direction, but uh, we had a glorious time here Friday evening, uh, not the typical Good Friday service where uh, we were focusing on the crucifixion and the death of Christ, but we were actually focusing on the love that God expressed to us through that atoning death, and we had some special symbolism uh, Friday evening. I, I, that's a part of what all of this is about. You may not have recognized the blue fabric, but it's really a river. The bridge should have been a clue to that fact. And the bridge, of course, leads to a cross. And on the cross are all kinds of strange mirrors with writing all over them. But actually, all of this kind of tells a story. And I want to go back a little bit in time and talk about a theme that God has been putting on our hearts here in this assembly, this uh, local congregation. And that theme has been His love for our community. His love for McHenry. Of course, His love expands all around the world. But we are particularly concerned about the place where He has planted us, the place where we live, and God has been burdening us and impressing upon us how much He loves this community. I'm sure that by now most all of you have seen uh, that sign that's over on 31, you know, the one that lights up day and night, and the marquee changes uh, periodically. Uh, it was about a year in the making, but some folks approached us a year ago about uh, renting a little spot of property so that they could put that up. And as we prayerfully considered that, and I won't bore you with all the details of the story, but we wanted to be sure they wouldn't be uh, talking about and advertising things that were uh, incompatible with our convictions, and they assured us that would not be the case. So we move forward with that, and part of the arrangement was that we would be able to have space on that sign for ourselves as, as a part of our um, working out the business details. And I tell you that because Wednesday evening we met for prayer in our usual congregational prayer time, and I posed a question to those who were present. I said, I want us to just wait in silence before the Lord, before we say anything, and I want to ask God what He wants on that sign during our passing spots. And I want you to write down what your impressions are, and then share them with us. And it was very interesting that after a time of silent waiting before the Lord and then sharing without the benefit of anyone tipping their hand, there was a um, congruence of conviction that the message God wanted to communicate was, I love you. 
I love you. I love McHenry. I love people. God really loves you. That has been the kind of theme that has been communicated to us over and over again. It's as if God is uh, pouring out a fresh blessing of His love on this community. And so, Thursday night, we celebrated the love that we have as a family around the, the Lord's table. And Friday night, with all of this symbolism, we celebrated the love of God that He has for McHenry by having a bridge that was actually built, well, John Dunford built this one, but, but the bridge to God was built by Jesus Christ. It was a bridge that He Himself took the initiative to build to reach from the heart of God to the needs that you and I have as human beings and make a way for us to go back to God. And so Friday night, everyone that wanted to do so was given a little tile on which they could write the names of people that they are praying for to come to know Jesus Christ or some passage of Scripture that's been on their heart. So as you sit here this morning and you weren't, if you weren't here on Friday, what this cross represents is God's love for specific individuals for whom our congregation is praying. This cross that symbolizes the death and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's empty. Our cross doesn't have a person on it. It's blank because He went into the ground, but He rose triumphantly on the third day. And on the cross are all the people that are specifically on our heart and mind whom God loves and He wants to share His love for. How do I know that God really loves people this much? There's an interesting story, an account in John's Gospel. He talks about that first year of ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ during those early days. And last week, if you were here, we talked about the turning of the tide that came and about the beginning of his third year of ministry. But until that point, things were building. And John tells us in the third chapter that on a certain evening, a man by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. It's interesting what Nicodemus said at that point. He says, teacher, we know he was a Pharisee. He was also considered to be one of the wealthiest people in the, in the area of Jerusalem at that time. And he said, teacher, we know that you have come from God. For no one could do the things that you do unless he were sent from God. Now that opinion changed over time as the tide began to turn. But Nicodemus remained convinced all the way to the end. We learned this morning at our sunrise service that he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, was one of two leading and significant Jewish people that came and requested the privilege of burying the body of Jesus Christ. 
Nicodemus came to, to get some first-hand information. He wanted a private consultation. And I'm so glad that he did that. Because in that conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus Christ, Jesus shared with him a message that has become perhaps the best known and one of the best love verses in all the Bible. As Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about the need to be born again, the need to be transformed from the inside out, and Nicodemus is puzzled over all of this and trying to figure out what Jesus is talking about, it is in that passage in verse 16 that Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For He did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now, you know, every language has its particulars. The way that we put words in a sentence uh, in different languages have different uh, meanings and significance to those words. Do you know what, in the Greek language, the first word in John 3.16 is? And before you guess at that, let me tell you that in the Greek language, usually the first word in the sentence has the stress. It's the most significant word. The first word in John 3.16 is the little two-letter word, so. So loved God the world. It's not even loved. It's so. It underscores the passion. It underscores the intensity. It underscores almost the bursting from the heart of God. So loved God the world. He, he, he wants us to get it. He wants us to know how deeply, deeply interested in us and loving toward us, He is. He told His people in the Old Testament, even the, the Israelites, I have loved you with an everlasting love. In fact, because God is omniscient, the Bible says that He knows the name of every single person who will ever live before He made Adam. He knows everyone. He knows your name. He knew when you were going to be born. He knew what your parents were going to call you, first, middle, and last, and extras. My father-in-law only has two names. He has no middle name. His name is simply Warren Thompson. My mother, on the other hand, coming to my side of the family was Clinton Laureen Barfield Yeoman Martin by marriage. And it doesn't matter. 
whether you have the same name, he knows that you're Paula, and there are other Paulas in the world, but he knows the Paula that you are. He knows your name. And the Scripture says He has loved you with an everlasting love. And in the foreknowledge of God, He he knew that if He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, He knew all of those who would put their faith and hope and trust in Him And the Scripture says He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life before He ever made the world. And He followed through consistently with His plan from the beginning to the end because He loves you and because He wants you to be with Him eternally. Now, the question comes to my mind, how do we know? that God loves us that much. How do we know that? Well, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 5, he says, while we were still in our weakness, Jesus Christ died for us at exactly the right time. And then Paul gives this illustration. He says, hardly anyone will die for a righteous man. Some people might die for a good man. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you this morning, let me backpedal real quickly and and explain it. Uh, Those of you who've been around a while, you you can probably do this for me because you've heard me say this before. But hardly anyone will die for a righteous man. What is Paul talking about? Why why wouldn't you die for a righteous man? Well, because righteous people keep the letter of the law. They're always about the rules. They're always about the regulations. They're always about getting it right. They don't care what it costs you. They don't care what you lose. You got to do it right. You got to keep the rules. Paul says they're not very inspiring. (laughs) Not too many people give their life for a stickler like that. You show up at the supermarket, you're hungry, you need a little extension of credit. Back in the old days, that was common. My grandfather tells me you could go to the store and, on your word, uh, buy a week's worth of groceries and come pay the grocer when you could. Well, if you went to a righteous grocer who didn't extend credit, he didn't care how hungry your family was. He wasn't about to give you any food. Cash on the barrel head. That's a righteous guy. Exactly right. Not very warm. Paul says not too many people give their life for somebody like that. But a good man, you know, that's the guy that will give you the groceries. A good man, people might die for somebody like that. But he says God demonstrated His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah put it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have everyone turned to our own way. The truth about us is that 
through our birth and through our heritage and by our own choice. You and I and every one of us without Jesus Christ and before Him were living life on our own terms, doing our own thing with hardly a thought toward God. Living a life that was displeasing to Him and in rebellion, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has gone in our own direction. We've written our own score. We're doing our own thing. And God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were on that path away from God, really the enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. How do I know how much God loves me today? I know that because He sent Jesus Christ into this world and He sent Him to the cross and Jesus willingly went so that through His atoning death I could have a bridge, a path, a way to come back to God. And isn't it interesting that the offended party was the one who reached out? Ever get into an argument with somebody, really bad one, maybe a close friend, maybe even a family member, and you get into a really bad argument, and life goes sour, and you can't even talk to one another? It takes a lot of courage to be the first one to extend the olive branch. It takes a lot of love to extend the branch if you're the one that was genuinely wronged. But you go to make the peace. And the Scripture says that God loved us like that. He was the one genuinely wronged. He had done nothing to deserve our rejection, or our refusal. And yet, He is the one who extended the branch, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring us to Him. Well, how do I know that there's any truth to all of this? I mean, it's a nice story. But how do I know that Jesus Christ is who He said He was? How do I know that He did what He claimed to have done? How do I know that all of this cross and death and crucifixion and, and all of that has any power to do anything? Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians tells a very interesting story. He says... I remind you, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you wish to follow, or you can just listen to me. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then comes the punchline. And he appeared to Cephas, or Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, you know, we read these letters of Paul, and they're 2,000 years old almost. And we forget that Paul wrote them at a time when the people were still living around whom these events occurred. And what Paul is saying is, I'm telling you Corinthians, he was writing about uh, A.D. 50 or so, and Jesus had been crucified and resurrected only about 20, 25 years before. And so I can remember 25 years before, I was already living in McHenry, and I can remember uh, many of you who were here when I came here. I can remember that. I can go talk to you if, if I want to know uh, what happened in the early days of this church. I can go find Marge. There you are. I can find Marge and I can ask her. And the reason I can ask her is because she was here the day they had the first meeting. And I can go get information from people who are eyewitnesses. What happened? And Paul is writing to people and saying to them, the, the twelve disciples saw him, Peter saw him. At one time, five hundred people saw him after the crucifixion, raised from the dead, walking among them as he said to Thomas, if you don't believe it's me, put your fingers in the holes in my hand and put your hand in my side and see that I have flesh and blood, that I'm fully alive. Check it out and see if you do not recognize the one that was crucified. And Paul says, you can go ask them. Now, you know, there are many skeptics. They say that this resurrection business was just all a made-up fancy. But Paul is giving eyewitness testimony. And not only that, but we know the story of the twelve. We know that all of them but John most likely gave their lives for what they believe. And we see in our world today that there are religious fanatics throughout the world who are willing to more or less commit suicide in the interest of their convictions. And sometimes people point to them and say, well, a lot of people die for a lie. Well, yes, they do, but they don't die for what they believe is a lie. Are you with me? They give their life for what they believe is true. And I underscore that because here are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the early church, there were hundreds of them. And many of them died on the simple question, do you believe or do you deny the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
And here were hundreds of people and nearly every one of the disciples who said, We saw him. We can do no other but die for him. It wasn't some religious fanaticism. It wasn't some crazy belief. It was the confident assurance that they had laid eyes on Jesus of Nazareth who had died on a cross but had come out of the grave on the third day. And the disciples watched him and others. There were others with them on that occasion. They watched him rise into the air with the assurance that he was coming back. And they were willing to die for that conviction. Paul says, go ask him. Many of them are still alive. Some of them have fallen asleep. But many of them are still alive. Go talk to them. And Paul says, last of all, then he appeared to James and to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, verse 8, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. Verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. See, some people at Corinth weren't sure there was a resurrection. Paul's entering into the argument. He says, you, de you deny a resurrection. Well, if you say there's no resurrection of your loved ones... Because there's no such thing as a resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised. This is hypothetical. But if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, every culture has a way of softening death. We don't like to use the word. We talk about people who pass away. It's like, well, where'd they go? What happened to them, you know? We soften the blow. In the first century culture, they talked about people who had fallen asleep if they were Christians. And the reason they used that phrase is because they were going to wake up one day and come out of the ground. But that does not mean that they were sleeping as in unconscious. Because Paul was also the one who said to be absent from the body in my spirit is to be present with the Lord. And then, one day, a trumpet will sound 
And Jesus Christ will return with all those who have fallen asleep in Him. He will come back with them and raise their bodies out of the ground. Put them back together. He is the author of life. He's the one who can restore that which is lost and put it back together. And we will rise up a resurrected people of God. And so Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I want you to know this morning that God has loved you with an everlasting love. He demonstrated it in the words of Jesus Himself because God sent His only Son into the world that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He proved that love for us because in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But more than His death, He was raised again. And Paul says there are hundreds of eyewitnesses to that fact. And more than that, Jesus said, having appeared to the twelve for the second time in a locked room with Thomas present, he said, Thomas, if you don't believe that it's me, put your, put your fingers in my hands. Put your hand in my side. See that I am not a ghost. I'm not an apparition. I'm a, a living, solid body. Check it out for yourself. Thomas, in that moment, needed no further proof. He didn't have to, to, to test the evidence. He immediately recognized Jesus Christ and exclaimed, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said these words to him, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are all those who believe though they have not seen me. Friends, Jesus Christ is alive today and those of us who know Him know that because we know Him. Because, as the song says, He walks with us and talks with us along life's way. Because we can meet in a prayer meeting and listen before God without saying a word, and we can hear Him speaking to us, giving impressions and giving words that all of us testify that we have heard this same message. Jesus Christ is alive today. And the truth is that because He is alive, you need never die. Because He is alive, you need never be alone. Because He is alive, He promises to give you wisdom, to give you direction, to walk with you, and to guide you, and to lead you throughout all of life. 
He promises to be your dearest friend. The one who, the Scripture says, sticks closer than a brother. He promises to be there for you no matter what happens. He promises to see you through every trial of life. He promises when you reach the end of life's journey, if it is not yet time for His return, to be there with you and cross that last bridge and receive you into His presence and glory. What could be better than that? This is the good news that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God was the offended party but He has extended the olive branch. Jesus Christ has paid the price. All that is required is that you acknowledge Him to be the Lord and Savior, the One who has taken your sin upon His cross. And to stop going your own way today and turn and face Him, confess Him as Lord, and say from this moment on, my life is yours. From this moment on, I follow you. I receive the payment. I receive the love. I accept the sacrifice. And beginning this day, I want to walk with you all the rest of the days of my life. God loves you so much. God loves you so much that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him should never perish but have everlasting life. Father, I pray this morning in the name of Jesus that You would communicate that love to Your people right here, right now. Father, I pray that for those who know You already as their Lord and Savior, that You would affirm to them this morning Your great love for them. That even in this moment, everyone in this room who is already Your child would experience the assurance of Your love and Your grace and Your mercy and the nearness of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, for those here this morning that are still hovering over this decision, one moment leaning toward and another moment leaning away. Why is it, Father, that we have such a hard time being loved? Why do we have such a difficult time running from Your open arms? Why do we put off the confident assurance that we shall never die when life is so uncertain? And I want to pray this morning, Lord, for any here who today do not know You as Lord and Savior. 
have not embraced the love that you have for them through Jesus Christ. Give them right now the grace of repentance. The grace to turn. The grace to believe. Take the scales from their eyes. Manifest to them your love. In their heart of hearts, may they receive the payment that you have made, Lord Jesus, for their sin. And may they repent and turn from their own ways and cross the bridge of faith and come back to the foot of the cross and the family of God. Do your work among us, O Holy Spirit of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here without Him this morning, I just want to give you a moment to, in your heart, do business with God. He has His arms open wide to receive you. He's paid all the price. He loves you and has loved you and He knows your name. And He wants you in His embrace. Like the father of the prodigal, He's been standing at the gate waiting for you to turn around and come home. And He's waiting for you right now. Will you come to Him? And the Scripture says, if you shall confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you shall have life eternal may God give you the grace and courage to confess him this day to friends and family as Lord and Savior in Jesus name I pray Amen